Welcome back to Flourishing in Medicine from Surviving to Thriving. I'm Dr. Mick Krasner, hosting this podcast, which is produced by MPRO, a medical professional liability insurance carrier headquartered in New York State. MPRO is dedicated to protecting New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Pennsylvania's physicians, healthcare facilities, and healthcare providers, and it offers a host of peer support activities, including this. Flourishing in Medicine explores ways health professionals can flourish in the complex and challenging world of healthcare. And today's guest is a colleague, a friend, and really an inspiration. I hope you will find, as I do, his enthusiasm and, and experiences and point of view and inspiration for you. Dr. Tim Cunningham is Vice President of Practice and Innovation at Emory Healthcare in Atlanta where he also functions as co-chief wellness officer for the Woodruff Health Sciences Center Office of Wellbeing, MWell. He is an adjunct associate professor in the Neil Hodgson Woodruff School of Nursing. And before joining Emory, Cunningham served as the director of the University of Virginia's Compassionate Care Initiative. Clinically, his background is as an emergency and trauma nurse and he's worked at multiple level one trauma centers in the United States, while also having served clinically in humanitarian crises such as the West African Ebola outbreak, post-2010 earthquake in Haiti, and in the ongoing humanitarian crisis in Myanmar-Burma-Bangladesh border. His research and publications focus on methods to advocate for well-being while measuring the impacts of specific wellness-related practices. Tim co-authored a book called Self-Care for New and Student Nurses in 2020, which examines ways to keep well-being relevant for the individual as well as for the health systems. I was fortunate to be able to contribute a chapter to the book, which honored Dr. Dory Fontaine, the now retired Dean of the School of Nursing at the University of Virginia. A registered nurse by clinical training with a specialty in emergency nursing, Tim holds a doctorate in public health from Columbia University, but perhaps his most important credential that gives him the authority to speak on flourishing is his work as a professional clown and involvement in Clowns Without Borders, where he has given humanitarian healing aid through clowning to some of the poorest and most conflict-ridden settings on our planet. In our conversation with Dr. Cunningham, we explore how the process of burnout touched his family and created a spark within him to become a health professional and how important he has found to stay connected with a sense of meaning to inoculate him against burnout. He discusses the challenges in his current role and challenges for chief wellness officers in general with a practical approach of using empirical evidence to drive leadership, innovation, and change. He predicts that soon the return on investment in medical staff well-being will become a no-brainer with such strong evidence that he expects he'll be out of a job at that point. And that would be just fine with Tim. You may find the parallels and connections he makes between clowning, theater, and healthcare not only entertaining, but also poignant and accurate as he shares personal stories of all of that. 
His take on flourishing in medicine, quite simply, is about making space. As he says, healing can really resonate when we create space. Maybe it's not us flourishing. Maybe this podcast should be about how we just let health flourish or healing flourish. Tim is truly a gift and inspiration and a force in wellness that is full of presence and compassion. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Tim Cunningham. Tim, welcome to Flourishing in Medicine, um, From Surviving to Thriving. Uh, we're really happy to have you as a guest. And uh, I'd like to start with something that I start all my uh, discussions with guests with is, you know, I've been impressed through my experiences in medicine, especially as educator, students, colleagues, staff, academics, whatever roles they have, but they're in healthcare that that sort of the common role. I've been impressed with their narratives when you we start to ask them, tell us a little bit about, you know, what were some of the formative experiences that you had that really convinced you, inspired you, thrust you into this life as a health professional, life as a nurse or some other clinical life. And what's been so amazing is, you know, there's poignant stories, there's very profound stories, there's often encounters with illness, aging, death, close, personal, sometimes in communities. So there's all these really rich combination of things that draw us all together in some ways, kind of uh, our, one could say, our archetypal story. So we want to hear, like, what is the origin story for you? How did you get here? Uh, and what were some of those early experiences you'd be willing to share with us uh, that have led you here? Mick, uh, thank you for that question. And, and I want to begin by just thanking for this, thanking you for this opportunity to share some ideas on this podcast. It's great to reconnect with you and and to have known you for many years as you've kind of seen me change throughout my professional journey as well. There are two origin stories that come to mind. And I want to share both. I hope you can have plural origin stories. I don't know if that's a thing or not. Um, but the, the first one is one that I literally learned a couple of years ago. And this is in reflection of my current work as co-chief well-being officer for the Woodruff Health Sciences Center and Emory Healthcare in a leadership role, working with professionals, health professionals, on how we can improve the workplace so people can be their best selves. And I realized one of my initial callings to this role, which I did not know when I was 17 years old when it happened, was that I nearly lost my father to burnout. And what I mean by that is that my father is a retired dentist. He is still with us, gratefully, um, and he was so burnt out. He was so frustrated with the systems he was working in. He didn't want to run a business. He wanted to treat people. And I grew up in a small town, and everybody knows him. And, and, and he treated so many people, so many of my friends, um, but he fell deeply into many of the negative symptoms that we see related to burnout and literally almost lost his life. Um, I learned a couple years, uh, just a few years ago, that there is a deep family history of suicidality within my family. And so all of these pieces are coming together. And I think I realized at a very early age that I was called to do something to help reduce the burnout of our healers. 
And when I say healers, I mean physicians, I mean nurses, I mean APPs, NPs. I remember, I, I, I mean the front desk staff person that our patients meet when they walk into a place that should be a place for healing. So I reflect on gratefully not losing my father, but the trauma that that caused our family in seeing how negatively burnout can impact our nation's healers. So that's one. Two, I became an emergency nurse um, because I had the opportunity. I was an actor before I became a nurse, and I volunteered with an organization called Clowns Without Borders. The mission of Clowns Without Borders is to share levity and joy and playfulness in zones of suffering and crisis. And so I was invited in 2006 to work with uh, a team of clowns in rural Haiti in a pediatric hospital. And we did our clown thing. We had docs and nurses engaging with us, dancing, playing, kids seated up in their beds, laughing. I saw all these medical conditions that I was to learn about later and then all the textbooks. And I saw firsthand tetanus, end-stage AIDS. Uh, I, I saw tuberculosis, all sorts of things. But the thing that changed my life was that at the end of our time working in the hospital, um, we were shuffling our way out as clowns and there was a group of people around a bed. And that was one of the first beds that we performed at when we came in about an hour prior. There was a child who appeared to be sleeping and the mother of this child asked if we would play a quiet song for the child over the child. So we did. The mother smiled, she hugged us afterwards. The father was there and he he like shook our hands and gripped them really hard and they said, thank you. And then we went around to see other kids. Well, that child was actively dying. And at the time when our show ended and we walked out of the hospital, the child had just passed away. And she died from malnutrition, Mick. She died because mom didn't have adequate nutrition while she was pregnant and the child struggled with malnutrition. And I remember literally physically feeling a shock through my entire body and deciding that day that I wanted to understand more. Why does a child a few hundred miles from the coast of a country where we spend more money on healthcare than any planet in the universe, as far as we know, why does this kid who's so close to our country die because she just can't get enough? So I was interested in health equity and inequity and interested in how I could become more active as a healer to, to understand that. So became a nurse and now I find myself in an executive leadership role. So, you know, you talk about the clown, clowning, doing that clown work that you did in Haiti in a setting of lots of different kinds of suffering uh, and still the capacity we all have for joy. I just want to connect it a little bit with maybe, a, we, maybe we have to define it a little bit differently, the kind of joy that we as health professionals can sometimes derive from our work. Maybe you can talk a little bit about joy in meeting as a health professional and whether it's important, if, if you believe that it is important, what do we mean by joy and, and kind of what are the ways in which we, we can get there? We can have joy even doing that kind of work. And it sounds like for you, that experience was very profoundly uh, touching and changed your life. But I would dare say, and correct me if I'm wrong, is there's a little element of joy there being in that in that situation. That's absolutely right. And the, and the joy, when we say joy, I think we sometimes connote this idea of happiness and, and everything is great and perfect and right. And yet I have felt joy in, in some of the most profoundly painful situations. And I think from a professional standpoint, 
Mick, that's such a great question about what does that joy look like? You know, we, we often say, or people say laughter is the best medicine. And I just think that's a lie. It, it's just not true because there's some extraordinary medicine out there that can do a lot more than laughter. And at the same time, Mick, so long as we're breathing, we have the ability to laugh. And when we think about joy in the health professions and so long as we are engaged, as we are acting, as we are witnessing someone suffering, feeling their pain, which is empathy, doing something to reduce that suffering, which is compassion, from that we experience a sense of joy. And from that joy, I think that is the joy um, I, I think of the poem Kindness by, by Naomi Nihab Shah, and, and she says, you know, it's it, it, only until you know suffering, it's kindness that gets you out of bed in the morning and ties your shoes and takes you out into the day to gaze at bread and then follows you like a shadow or, or a friend. It's that same joy that gets us out of bed in the morning or in the evenings to work overnight or in the morning to work during the day, um, knowing that we are doing something that is compassionate which is healing. And, and I mean, there's proof of it that w when I was doing my doctoral dissertation, I have a doctorate in public health. Um, and when I was doing my dissertation work, that was round about the time of the West Africa uh, Ebola outbreak. And I had the opportunity to do my dissertation on looking at burnout of frontline caregivers um, treating people with Ebola. Um, I worked as a nurse on the front lines for about nine weeks uh, in, in Sierra Leone doing the work. And then when I came home, I interviewed people to ask about burnout, assuming that our teams would feel tons of burnout. But Mick, what we learned in this work, me and my colleagues, was that very few people felt any burnout physicians, nurses, caregivers, even though we were exposed to Ebola every day, we didn't have enough supplies. We literally had nine medications in our entire pharmacy. We saw so much suffering and death to the tune of sometimes tripping over corpses when we would begin a shift because there was just so much death. And at the same time, there was a profound sense of joy, not that people were suffering, but joy that we had meaning in everything we did every single day. And Mick, I think joy, I'm gonna get a little snarky here, joy in that we didn't have to chart every daggone thing in the electronic medical record. I treated this patient with this. I gave this patient this, this patient appeared this way. We didn't have any computers and we didn't have time to do it. So I think joy in, in the health professions for physicians and nurses comes from knowing that we have meaning in our work. And I'll just end with, it scares me to death to meet with physicians who are choosing to leave the workforce right now because they've lost that connection with their own meaning and work. They say things like, I signed up to be a healer and I am being incentivized to generate revenue. I am being incentivized to be really good at charting. I'm being incentivized to be fast. But I think the true meaning and healing, we should be incentivized to heal and that should take as long as it needs. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you. And it's a real challenge for us. It's a shame that it has that effect on people that they lose that connection. For you, the connection and a word that's come up already a number of times in your sharing is compassion, taking action to alleviate the suffering would be one definition, suffering of others. And then your, the origin story, the first one you told, you know, one, one could have had an experience of a, a close family member, a father in your case, who, you know, was traumatized in some ways and almost lost his life, as you described, from the ravages of burnout. 
And you could have chosen to do something else and say, I don't want to get anywhere near this. But there's something about this drive we have because we're a social species to connect and also to take care of each other. It's actually one of the reasons why we have been up till now fairly successful, very successful as a species, compassion. So, yeah, maybe you could talk a little bit about the ways in which compassion shows up even now in your work as a as a co-chief wellness officer and your work in a large health system, but also as your work as, as a nurse in the Ebola tents or even in the clinic, in the pediatric clinic or in the emergency ward where you've worked uh, quite a bit. So much of, 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 of what you're, you're talking at um, and talking towards and into the space of compassion, Mick, I think begins with, with showing up. And, and I, and I, I want to give credit to you. I began learning about how to show up in healthcare from some of your early papers. Um, I had the opportunity to uh, learn, start to learn mindfulness um, when I was at the University of Virginia uh, by very, uh, very generous donor and colleagues and, and people who exposed me to that work. And much of the early papers were papers that you and colleagues had written in, in, in practicing mindfulness. And to really put that in a nutshell for me, it begins with showing up and practicing showing up and practicing showing up again and again and again and again. Um, I also think of the words of, of, of Mr. Rogers, uh, Fred Rogers from Mr. Robert Rogers' Neighborhood, who said, you know, when, when there's a crisis, when there's a concern, look for the helpers and who are the people that are showing up. And, and, and in this ever complex world that we live in, it is the physicians that have showed up since the beginning of time. It is the nurses who have showed up since the beginning of time. Look at any war, look at any, any natural disaster or, or greed-inspired disaster or any sort of disaster, um, and who's always showing up? It's physicians, it's nurses, it's caregivers, and, and, and it's healers, whether they have the letters behind their name or not. Um, so when we think about for me, compassion begins with showing up and a desire to show up. My father told me not to go into anything related to healthcare. He was so broken and burnt out. And so I went into acting. I, I, I took his advice. I majored in English. I, I went into acting. And so I had to relearn the sciences to get back into nursing school about seven years out. Um, but I think it is, as we are all human, as we are all working to survive together as a species, we are learning more clearly that it's compassion that will keep enabling us to show up. And when we can't do it, when we are feeling exhausted, when we're having what um, a lot of people are calling empathy fatigue, we used to call it compassion fatigue. I think that's a misnomer because you can never exhaust yourself or be exhausted from compassion. Roshi Joan Halifax talks about this. There are other writers and scientists that say, no, compassion is, that can be a wellspring, but empathy you're going to run out on that. And when I witness you, Mick, do something compassionate, I could have some empathy fatigue, but if I see you do something compassionate, my mirror neurons are going to fire and I'm going to be inspired to do something else compassionate and I'm going to feel good about myself. So it begins with showing up and then it begins with noticing, paying attention mindfully how you show up, noticing how other people show up and then feeding off of that. And it's like this beautiful, positive feedback loop of the more we show up, the more we show up. And the more we show up, there's more compassion. And the more compassion, the more showing up. It's not very scientific, I, I don't think, but I, I hope that kind of makes sense. It, I think it makes complete sense. Um, 
And uh, in some ways, you're, this compassion, you're talking about how does one flourish uh, and use that positive reinforcing. Um, in fact, we are physiologically uh, designed to be compassionate because we gain some very powerful biochemical uh, messages that reinforce that, that say, this is good. It should feel good and keep doing it because it's good not only for you, but it's good for your species. It's good for your loved ones. It's good for your patients. It's we can go on and on. Um, I just want to shift slightly. Your current position at Emory Health includes, you know, co-chief, the uh, co-chief well-being officer and many listeners, listeners, including myself, even now with all the years, number of years that we've had uh, wellness officers in our institutions and large healthcare organizations wonder what what is it you know i think it's a uh, in some ways a a uh, a placement in an organization that still is defining itself who are the groups whose well-being your office is charged with and what impact can a position like this have on uh, well-being especially for health professionals in an organization like this. So maybe talk a little bit about your position, how it came about, and what are your, how do you approach it philosophically, physically, emotionally, cognitively, all the ways in which we approach things? A question I frequently get is, hey, Tim, as co-chief wellbeing officer, what do you do? <laughs> and, and, and you named it. And, and, and there have been many offices of well-being out there for a while. And it's, we're continuing to learn as we do this work in many ways. Um, when we talk about our work in our office, and I am a co-chief, I share this role with a, a colleague of mine, Dr. Chad Rittenauer. Um, we're one of only a few offices nationally that are co-led by a nurse physician partnership. Um, and I think that also brings a lot of benefit to the work we do. And I'll begin with scope. The scope of our office is in service of our entire teams. I, I, I like to say from our valets to our vascular surgeons. We also cover our health sciences schools, so our school of medicine, nursing, public health, and we have a national primate research center that we're learning a lot of interesting things about. I'll come back to that. But we cover our, our, our researchers, we cover our students and faculty and, and staff as well, from our A to Z, our anesthesiologists, all the way through our zoologists. Um, because we firmly believe philosophically that when it comes to well-being, um, John F. Kennedy was once credited of having said, a rising tide lifts all boats. And so we believe from our office that when our team is well, patients will flourish. But for patients to flourish, our teams have to flourish. And when you focus on team well-being, as opposed to just nurse well-being or just physician well-being, that enables a physician to walk into work and having a really bad day. Because if your team is healthy and well, your team is going to lift you up. If you're having a great day as a physician leader and your team is not doing well, then you've got that extra energy to lift them up and support them. So that's the woo-woo level of how we think about well-being, how are we enacting it? And that's where it gets really difficult. There are over a decade of great research on physician burnout. One thing we're really good about in the well-being space is measuring how badly we're doing. We're so good at measuring burnout. We're so good at measuring suffering. And a research colleague of mine from the University of Virginia would always remind me, he said, Tim, the harder you look to measure something, more likely eventually you're going to find it. Just keep building that sample size up. You're going to get it. You're going to find significance. We're trying to shift that narrative when it comes to measurement. Can we use scales like there's a, the post-traumatic growth inventory by Tadeshi and Calhoun? Can we look at scales like that to measure the strengths 
to measure what's working because we also, I mean, the more surveys you fill out on how burnt out you are, you're probably going to get burnt out on the surveys and also start to feel bad about yourself when you realize, wow, I'm in a really rough spot. Um, so there are aspects of measurement of knowing where we are. And then more importantly, our work in our office of well-being is about systemic and structural change. And what I mean by that is working with teams to examine, for example, our leave policies. If you're a person that works at Emory Healthcare and you want to have a child, are we offering you the most evidence-based leave policies that are going to give you as much time as possible to be home with your kid? For one, from a nursing perspective, we changed a policy early on. We used to have a policy that said, uh, if you're caught sleeping on the job, it's immediate termination, period. So we worked and we changed that policy to say, um, if you are an hourly worker, like a nurse, a technician, someone that's not salaried, you get a 30-minute unpaid lunch break. So we changed the language to say, if during your 30-minute unpaid lunch break, you can safely take a power nap outside of patient care and patient view, we, we support that because your rest is important. Because Mick, if the nurses you're working with are well-rested, your team is going to function that much better. So we, we our office is looking at those structural policy changes. We are also advocates for well-being. We have uh, chief titles. So we sit in the executive suite, the C-suite. And a big part of our job is, let's go back to compassion, Mick. It's showing up and it's advocating for how are these decisions going to support the well-being of our team? We ask our leaders, how are you looking at this decision through the lens of well-being? But frankly, that's a foreign concept to a lot of executive leaders because what we don't yet have nationally, which we will have, I give you my word, hopefully sooner than later, but we don't yet have is a, a revenue generating system to show how well-being support will make money for a hospital. We don't have that ROI in the traditional ROI sense. We're getting close. And, and when we have that, we're going to see a major shift in the way we think about well-being because as much as we are healers, we work in a capitalist system that is about generating revenue. And if that's not going to change, which it probably won't change soon, then we have to address our well-being conversations and incentives and, and initiatives around a revenue generating structure. So that's the long game. Back to the short game in advocacy, it's also being seen and seeing people. It's meeting with individual team members and helping them think about how do they care for themselves? What do they do for personal resiliency while we're trying to shift cultures and support workplace well-being? I mean, I think it's undeniable that if your caregivers, Mick, are well, patients are going to do better because we know when patients feel seen, heard, and truly cared for, they will thrive. And we also know that the only way that someone can give the care that the humans that we treat deserve, it, it has to be a thriving person. Yeah, I really like a couple of things that you said I want to reflect on. One is um, turning not only at the data that tells us how bad things are, but looking at the strengths and capacities, this appreciative approach and, and appre an appreciative approach we use, as you probably know, in our in our mindful practice and medicine training and it is actually much more highly motivating to look at and to carry forward things that were that are working right now and there are things that are working right now on the other hand as you mentioned measuring the cost of healthcare staff burnout is difficult but you know we're good at measuring stuff and it, like you say it can be done there are estimates that are just astounding on what it's actually costing and Believe me, that will get the attention of the C-suite 
your chief financial officers, your chief operating officer, your chief executive officers will all pay very close attention and then try out, you know, a variety of things that could work. I, I wanted to ask you kind of an odd question, but in this role you have, can you connect for us? Because, you know, there's a thread through all of our lives that sort of run and you've beautifully shared with us the threads that are important to you in terms of compassion and in terms of, you know, showing up through nursing, through clowning, through acting, through medicine. What is the connection between your this professional role you have now and clowning? <laughs> mm-hmm. The connection between this professional role I have now and clowning is getting more and more clear to me every single day. Wow. I love that question. One word, art. Clowning, and, and for the audience, and, and I, I, I want to be mindful that there might be some people listening right now who are afraid of clowns. I'm going to try to be very clown neutral. I don't want to trigger anyone or have anyone jump off the podcast. But I, so Mick, I've, I've worked in about 21 other countries with the organization Clowns Without Borders and some other theater companies, including the U.S. And it's only in the U.S. that I've met people that are legitimately afraid of clowns. And that's a whole curious conversation for another time. What a clown is when clown is done well it's art. And the art form is listening, reading the audience, and then giving back to the audience something that they need they don't even know they need. And the clown is is, is, is the master of juggling, of acrobatics, of physical comedy, maybe of magic, of, of movement, of maybe verbal improv. But the best clowns are the ones that are really good at improvising in the moment taking what the audience gives, responding to it, and then actually giving the audience what the clown knows they're going to do anyways, but they work it in a way that the audience feels like, how did that clown all of a sudden start juggling? How did they know that's what I needed? The clown as an artist has the ability, and I learned this from Rita Sharon, who's done a lot of great narrative medicine work at Columbia University. Rita talks about the space in between, of the, between the provider and the patient. And, and seeing that space and addressing that space and addressing that energy. The clown does the same thing with the audience. Here's what the audience has and needs and sees. Here's what the clown has and needs and sees. And here's how the energy between the audience and the clown interacts. And the clown responds appropriately, leading to laughter, which is healing. How does this apply to my current profession? My current profession and role, even though I sit in an executive suite and I'm not on the front lines anymore, is more about healing than any role I've ever had. But it's about healing and supporting so many people at once, much broader voices. And I practice clowning every day with it. It begins with paying attention, showing up. It also begins with, I can't tell you how many ideas, Mick, I've brought forward that have, the no no is, I I hear no all the time. And so clowns are also resilient. Like a clown trips and falls and pounces back up and keeps going. A clown never gives up. And so, and an artist is constantly refining their craft and their skill, doing what they can do and then seeing how it can be better and, and doing that. And that's what we're trying to evolve with the well-being work and also communication. I mean, if you can't communicate this stuff well, you're going to lose your audience like that. And so I'm constantly learning now what is, what is my position in this theater? Because Mick, I think it's all theater mm-hmm. and maybe all of life is theater and how we engage with one another. Mm-hmm. In I would not have this job if I had not had the clown training. Absolutely. Mm, yeah, you make a compelling case for that. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I would think the listeners must be really curious. I'm certainly really curious. Maybe you can share a story or two 
as you describe that space that is created in the clowning experience, in your work experience, maybe share a story to, from your clowning, because I think we would love to hear that, uh, where something happened that has just stayed with you, has been a in source of inspiration, a source of joy and meaning that maybe in the telling of it, you will re-experience re that and that you may draw upon in the future when you, when you have challenging moments as we all have. Two stories come to mind, and one that applies more to my work when I was working fully in the clinical space, and the other applies more towards my leadership work, and I hope the audience will hear the second one in, in a place of mentorship and recognizing how beautiful your audience is right now, in that they continue to practice healing in a place where healing is not necessarily incentivized. So let me go back to the first story. First story, I was working with Clowns Without Borders. We were invited, this was in uh, Texas. This was right outside of Austin, Texas. Our organization was invited to work in a series of safe homes for women who had been um, uh, abused at home, who had children. And it was a, a place, uh, literally we had, we met our, our, our guide at a McDonald's and they said, from this moment on, you don't write down addresses. You, you don't report where we went. Um, and it's, you know, safe lockdown. And we go in, we do our clown show. And part of the clown show, we do this really dumb bit where I pull a handkerchief out of my pocket of my, my tuxedo tails. And it's a red handkerchief because I have to sneeze and I sneeze. And then I try to get it out of my hand, but it's stuck to my hand because it's full of boogers and snot and do this whole act like funny bit where I pull it out of my hand and I trip and I fall and I can't get it unstuck. And then finally I go up to a child in the audience who is usually by that point reaching out to help me get it unstuck. And a child reaches her hand up and then she takes the handkerchief out of my hand. And then everybody laughs because the kid is like, you know, figures it out. And then I take it again and then I make it magically disappear in my hand goes away and then it comes out from behind under my hat and then it goes away again in my hand and I pull it out um, from the uh, behind another clown's ear and then it disappears a third time and then I, I'm like where is it and normally I look in the audience to see if a kid raises their hand to see oh me 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 and this particular show this child who pulled it out of my hand originally when it was stuck raised her hand again and she was laughing and playing and looking at her friends so I went up to her and I pulled it out from behind her ear and she stood up and just laughed and scream laughed, like really, really happy. And then she sat down and we finished our show. At the end of the show, one of the psychologists that was working there came up to me and said, um, how, did you, how did you know to pick that child and why did you pick that child? And I said, well, I, I was just picking up connection and energy from her. And, and I, I thought, you know, she, she felt safe enough and comfortable enough to, to do this. So we engaged in the, in the thing and, and, and it went well. And then I asked, I said, did I do something wrong? Is there a concern? Because we have to keep checking in as clowns, especially working with vulnerable people. And the psychologist said, I'm not concerned, but this is the first time since this child arrived a few days ago that she's made eye contact with anyone, that she was willing to actually touch anyone. Like when, and they said, when you came up to her, we were really afraid that she was going to have this massive fear panic response just because of the history that brought her to that place in the first place. Mm -hmm. And they said, but she freely reached out and engaged with you. How did you do that? Mm -hmm. And that, Mick, I think is healing. And that's healing from showing up. And that's healing from doing what you know how to do when it needs to happen. How do physicians continue to work as healers in places where they can flourish? My second story is about the long-term impacts. 
and how we help our patients flourish. I was uh, living in New York City uh, at this time and Clowns Lab Borders was invited to give a presentation at the World Bank down in Washington, DC. Um, we, we, uh, we got a really big donor out of it. And we had a couple smaller donors who said, hey, this could be a good enrichment program. Come to the World Bank, give a presentation. So I came to the bank, my presentations on Clowns Lab Borders, I begin them in clown gear, doing my clown thing. And then over time, I take off the nose and I, I take off the hat. Then I talk about the impacts of our work. So hour long presentation at the end of the presentation, and people are laughing and having a good time. At the end of the presentation, we have, you know, mic set up, like, you know, in all the conferences where people come up to the mic and they don't ask questions, but they just brag about like, I did this and I have these degrees. And then you're like, <laughs> are you going to ask a question or not? Um, so we had the mic set up and this woman walks up to the mic and she says, I don't have a question but I want to say thank you. And she said, when I was a child, I lived in Croatia and I spent much of my childhood living in a refugee camp. And she said, I very clearly remember one Christmas time, Clowns Without Borders came to our camp. This is like the, the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, I guess. Um, the clowns came to our camp and they did a show. And she, she said for every year at Christmas time after, even though the clowns only came one time, I would get together with my girlfriends and we would reenact the entire show. And she said, that's a memory that stuck with us. Mm. Still sticks with us when we are now here. She is working at the World Bank. She's an, a global leader. That's something that sticks. It's the stuff you can't predict sticking that sticks. It's the moment as a physician that you sit next to your patient and hold their hand. It's that moment as a physician that you give more time to your team, that you hold that space. It's that moment as a physician where you take off your hat. And, and Mick, you actually wrote this in the, the, the textbook that you, you, you submitted a chapter to. When you practice beginner's mind, that is an act of compassion. Hmm. And you show up and you pay attention. Hmm. And um, I think both of those moments help me see how healing can really resonate when we create a space. Maybe it's not us flourishing. Maybe this podcast should be about how we just let health flourish or healing <laughs> flourish. I don't know, but we it's have thought. It's a good thought. Wow. Wonderful story. Very touch, very moving uh, for me to to hear that. Um, I have two more things. I just, before we finish up as a nurse and an expert in public health, you've, you know, you're really beautifully articulated, words about compassion and in one ted talk you called you talked about quote un unforgetting compassion so kind of a, another way of saying remembering but it, you said it as unforgetting compassion maybe you can just share with us what you meant by that idea and a little bit about you, you also talked about this activation of the ventral part of our nervous system that is a is a salve is a bomb toward flourishing and also looking up, maybe if you can bring in those three little concepts together. Absolutely. When 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 I use the term unforgetting uh, in, in in my TED presentation, I, I thought about I, I created that term for that talk in recognition that as healers, we are born healers. We are we are born compassionate. We are born. And there's evidence that says if we look at some of the medical evidence, it finds that, you know, around about third year of medical education for a lot of learners, we see a decline in a sense of altruism and, and things like that. So when I talk about unforgetting compassion, we have to, many of us, I think, have forgotten it in some ways. And 
not only do we have to remember it, sort of our origin story, if you will, as, as you asked earlier, but we also have to practice things to help us unforget it so we don't forget it again. Because we work in health systems where compassion arguably is not incentivized. We work in health systems in places where there's so many external pressures that distract us from the person that we are trying to help support and heal. Not only do we have to remember, but we have to actively fight against it at times and unforget it and unlearn what we have learned that has actually prevented healing. Um, and, and, it, and I think it spirals. I also think of the book, Beloved, Toni Morrison's Beloved. She talks about this concept of rememory, not just memory, but rememory. And that's engaging with what memories we may have from our ancestors, from those who have gone before, from our experiences and from the traditions of medicine, of nursing, of healing. How do we also stay in touch with what has been learned by generations before and honor that and, and don't kick that out of our memory and don't, we have to unforget and, and learn skills so we, we don't forget or re-forget or re-forget. Um, when we think about uh, our, our, our engagement and looking up and, and the ventral, the cognitive systems and, and what we pay attention to. Um, and much of this comes from research by Jim Austin. Um, and uh, he's got a book, Zen in the Brain. It's, it's a beautiful book. It's also a great snoozer. If you have trouble sleeping, pick that book up. <laughs> you can use it as a pillow. And it's just so dense. I'm rereading chapter over chapter. Um, but a lot of this comes from his research where he, he has found that when we actively look upwards, using our ocular muscles to look upwards, we engage what he calls our allocentric processing systems, thinking systems in an allocentric Greek for diverse or other, but we engage our brains in sort of taking in the space around us, reading the room, paying attention to those around us, what, what they're giving us, what we're receiving. And when we look upwards, we train our brains to kind of engage with that. Conversely, his research suggests that when we actively look downwards, we engage different parts of our ventral system and get different parts of uh, a system in which we are more thinking, we're thinking more egocentric thoughts, which is not always a bad thing. You're studying for your boards, your steps, all of these exams, you need to be very egocentric. You need to be looking down and memorizing so that you can be a great healer by passing all these boards. So it's not always a bad thing. Um, but when I think about that, and, and I also think about how great it feels to look up and see the shapes of clouds above you. Mm -hmm. How much joy does it feel to see a kite in the air? In fact, I had the opportunity to write a children's book about kite flying as it related to resilience in the Ebola uh, epidemic. Because when we would walk to and from the Ebola units to treat patients, especially when walking home after all of the death and suffering we experienced, we'd always see healthy kids outside running and flying kites. And it felt so good to look up. So when we think about unforgetting compassion and, and going back to our own origins, because none of us would be here. No one listening to this podcast, I hope, would be here if you weren't inherently a healer and wanting to stay connected with that. So maybe that process of unforgetting simply begins by looking up and reminding ourselves to look up. In this scary world, where, where do you look most of the time? Mick, I look most of the time down at my phone. Oh, I got a like, I got a, you know, like we have to, we have to shift that narrative and we can, and our brains, I think, and hearts want us to. Thank you. Um, and just finally, one last thing. So, you know, working in your role and let's say three years from now, five years from now, you're 
the office has been incredibly successful. You've created a work environment that is sustaining, nurturing, compassionate, committed, present, attentive. Um, maybe you can just describe what what is that? What would that experience be like for a patient coming into that system? Uh, and what would that experience be like for someone working there at whatever level, nurse, doctor, receptionist, financial officer, whatever? We'll start with the patient. We'll move on to the professional and 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 we'll wrap with with one of my personal life goals. We will see significant reductions in patient harm. We will see significant reductions in medication errors. We will see significant reductions in 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 CLABSI, CAUTI, you know, uh, uh, hospital associated pneumonias. We will see a reduction in length of stay. I think we will also see more natural births for mothers. I see. I think we will see. Certain there'll be certain reductions in length of stay because there'll be fewer complications and there might be other longer lengths of stay, which we'll have to negotiate with our CFO for maybe a mom who really wants to come in and deliver naturally and will have a compassionate place where she can do that and safely. Of course, we are going to see great, uh, we're going to see great leapfrog scores. We're going to see great uh, patient compliments and comments. We're going to see um, patients who say, call in to see a certain physician and that physician might be on vacation and the patient will say, I am so glad they're on vacation and I trust you with anyone else you're going to schedule me with because I trust so-and-so because they've been my doctor for years, but I know you have such great teams. We're going to see patients glow. We will see less use of pain medication. There was a clown study actually with hospital clowns in the pediatric wards finding that kids that experienced clowns post-op, if the kid welcomed the clown in, there was less use of post-op operative pain medications. That's what we'll see for patients. What we're going to see for providers and professionals, we are going to see reductions in attrition. We are going to see people that show up outside of work hours just to support their teams because they love their team so much. We're going to see people that want to work at a place like Emory Healthcare. We're not there yet, but this is a dream state. We're going to see people that say, I want to work at Emory Healthcare because I know you're going to give me two weeks of paid time to volunteer for Doctors Without Borders. I know that you see me as a human being, and I know that you know the science that says when people have time to volunteer in or outside of their profession, they're actually more engaged when they come back to work. We're going to have people that don't go to work when they're sick and get over that hero concept that they have to show up because no one else can do the work. And we're gonna see people picking up extra hours for team members that are sick because people know that they matter. Long-term goal for this Office of Wellbeing is that I wanna work my way out of a job in the next 10 years. I think there is a profound irony in that health that healthcare needs officers of well-being. Because if truly we are all healers and we come to this profession as healers, then we should be the last people on the planet that need well-being support, theoretically. And I do believe that it is systems that is breaking us, that has broken us, that will continue to break us until offices of well-being can better engage with CFOs, CEOs, COOs, to really shift structure. So I hope in 10 years, there is no place for me. And then Mick, I'll call you asking for a gig. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Tim. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been a great conversation. We'll have to have you back at some point. And um, I'm just really appreciative of my uh, friendship with you, my collegiality with you, and just you being able to make it today. 
Thank you very much for listening to Flourishing in Medicine. We will include a summary of today's podcast and links to Dr. Tim Cunningham and other references that were discussed in the show notes. I'd like to leave you with a practical exercise to help you flourish during your workday. Consider drawing upon this practice or any of the previous ones we have shared with each podcast, building a toolbox of practices that will support your well-being and your flourishing. This practice involves movement, the kind of movement we engage in regularly. But this time, now, with awareness, this movement practice is an opportunity to move with intention. So either as you're listening to this or after this podcast, walking with intention and awareness. As Tim described, the clown moves with an intention to show up. So here you are, just simply walking, showing up to walk. Nowhere in particular, but simply to walk and be fully with the walking. You may want to choose a, a short lane with, within your space where you are right now that allows half a dozen or so steps in one dire- direction. And then simply turning around and walking back in the opposite direction. Doing this from time to time, spending a few minutes with Just walking and consider practicing this with awareness and attention, showing up as the clown shows up at work when you're moving from here to there in your workplace, at the supermarket, as you walk from your car into the house. We walk a lot. So there's lots of opportunities to turn just short periods of this into an awareness practice, bringing awareness to your walking and be curious about what happens. So look forward to seeing you next time. For more information about MPRO, who produces this podcast, please visit www.myempro.com. And if you'd like to know more about the kind of work I do and the kind of programs that I'm involved in, visit www.mickkrasnermd.com or www.mindfulpracticeinmedicine.com. See you next time.